everyone. On this episode of the Peaceful, Loving, Vibrant podcast, I talk with Raha. Raha is an Iranian-American psychologist currently living in Durham, North Carolina with her partner in life, Felix, and their fetch-loving pup, Abby. She aims to live in alignment with her name, which signifies a state of liberation or freedom in Farsi. Raha's training is rooted in a social justice framework. She is committed to mental health equity, and she is passionate about decolonizing psychology. Raha is also trilingual, and she loves snacks, powerlifting, and Earl Grey tea. I'm really excited for y'all to hear this conversation where we talk about the role of meditation and therapy, how to find the therapist, and so many other themes around mental health. Welcome everyone to the Peaceful, Loving, Vibrant podcast. I'm your host, Anikia Nelson, and today I'm talking about meditation and mental health with my friend, Raha. Welcome, Raha. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Can you tell us how long you've been practicing psychology? And then also, I like to ask all my guests, what three words describe how you want to show up in the world? Because that's actually how I named the podcast based on my three words. Gosh, I don't even know how long now it all blurs together. Um, but <laughs> I started I started grad school um, in 2013. Um, so really since then, um, I've been building um, my, my practice and, and it's really an art. Um, it's really an art and a science. And I think that is something I really appreciate about the field of psychology. Um, and in terms of the three words, uh, how I show up or want to show up, um, kindness is something that I really value, um, being compassionate and also being curious. Mm, love that. And then tell us a little bit more about your work as a psychologist. Do you see patients? Do you do research or a mix of the two? Yeah, or yeah. Something else? Sure, yeah. So I, I started off grad school in 2013 thinking I was going to go more the research uh, side of things. I thought I was going to uh, pursue that after graduating. Um, but after doing clinical rotations, I just fell in love with like working in clinical settings. And mm -hmm. uh, I decided to pursue a postdoc that focused on um, integrating mental health within primary care and also uh, behavioral medicine. So fo focusing on pain management and also focusing on sleep, um, adjusting to chronic illness, um, so I, I really was like, okay, I'm going to go after the clinical side of things. Um, and of course, the research informs the practice and really valuing evidence-based approaches. Um, so it's always grounded in the research, but I, I really have leaned more towards uh, clinical work and have, I mean, I'm still working on publishing my dissertation. It's something I'm working on with my advisor. I still try to get involved with research here and there, but just day to day, most of my work is clinical. Okay. Nice. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you mentioned evidence-based approaches. What's the evidence around meditation? Yeah, 
Absolutely. So there's a really strong, uh, a really strong body of literature supporting uh, mindfulness meditation in terms of reducing depression and anxiety, reducing pain, helping improve overall quality of life, improving coping with chronic illness, and really just improving physical health overall. So there's a lot of um, great, robust research to support mindfulness meditation. I will say that what the literature looks at is a regular mindfulness meditation practice, Mm -hmm. formal practice, right? So there's a distinction between formal and informal. So formal being listening to a guided meditation or, or doing it on your own for couple of minutes to 20, 30 minutes or longer, um, Mm -hmm. a day or so. And informal being mindfully washing your dishes, being mindful when you're with family. Um, Although both are important, that formal practice is what uh, folks have studied. And that's where Mm -hmm. we see a lot of the benefit. Mm, Makes sense. So kind of like a sitting meditation practice. Yeah, exactly. Nice. And I mean, all the areas you just mentioned, I think, are so common, Um, pain, depression, chronic illness, Mm -hmm. especially with the pandemic. Yes, yes, absolutely. And it's non-medicinal. It's something Mm -hmm. we all can do. We all have access to. Um, It is contraindicated in some cases. There are some folks who maybe shouldn't practice mindfulness, Um, maybe folks who have untreated trauma symptoms. um, It can be uncomfortable to to sit in silence and to sit with thoughts and to have that mindful awareness. Um, So it's important to kind of look at that piece too. It is obviously a wonderful tool and there's a lot of research to support it and also may not work for everyone as well. Can you talk a little bit more about that, about um, areas where maybe it might be not such a good idea for people to meditate? Yeah, yeah. You know, I think the biggest area that comes to mind is folks who have untreated trauma symptoms. Um, It tends to be oftentimes triggering for folks to sit with what may be coming up physiologically for them or intrusive thoughts or flashbacks, um, and that can make the practice difficult. Um, There are strategies that can assist with coping with things like intrusive thoughts and flashbacks. Uh, There's a grounding technique that can be helpful, sort of like mindfulness and also a little different. But generally, folks with untreated trauma symptoms, it's it's not ideal to practice mindfulness meditation as like your first way of pursuing treatment, right? There's a lot of evidence-based therapies for PTSD, such as prolonged exposure therapy, um, cognitive processing therapy. Um, so my, my thought is that going that route, treating the PTSD symptoms, getting a reduction in symptoms, and then pursuing mindfulness meditation. I'm no expert on that, though. I just know that it, it can be contraindicated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. And actually, from my personal experience, so I've been meditating for quite a long time. But after I miscarried our twins, it Mm. became very difficult for me to meditate Mm. without having a flashback or just really strong feelings come up. Mm. So I'm wondering, too, if um, maybe guided meditations or, you know, other 
or using it, like you said, kind of as a tool along with other modalities um, mm. might be helpful, you know, depending on the, the level of the trauma, of course. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I really appreciate you sharing that. Um, I know, I know that talking about trauma can be really difficult and just reflecting on trauma um, can be, it can bring up a lot. So I appreciate you naming that. And you're right. I mean, it can be really hard when in those moments of turning inward and, um, and it doesn't mean we can't use pieces of mindfulness when there has been a trauma. Um, Mm -hmm. We just want to be mindful of what's happening for us. You know, if you notice that for you, it was difficult. Like, how can you shift it? How can you make it work? Uh, So for example, one way to do that is to not close your eyes. So Hmm. I always offer the invitation to leave your eyes open or closed, which I'm sure you do as well as do Mm -hmm. other folks. Um, And part of that is a feeling for a feeling of safety. and, And also, especially for folks who have trauma histories that Um, maybe there's hypervigilance, maybe someone doesn't want to close their eyes because they want to keep an eye on the door, right? Or some Mm -hmm. other reason. Um, So that's a a way we can modify the practice too. Yeah, that's really helpful. Um, And kind of getting back to the evidence behind meditation and areas where it is helpful, like depression and pain and all of that, Is there an understanding of why it's helpful and how it works? I mean, I would Mm -hmm. say that, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about my, myself and how mindfulness has helped me with my anxiety. It's, I, I relate to my anxiety differently. Like I, when I engage in mindfulness meditation it helps me detach myself from anxiety or depressed mood. Um, so I think it's that separation, um, Uh and being able to engage with the symptom differently, right? Like noticing that it's there, um, and not letting it be in the driver's seat. Like I, I see that the anxiety is present. I see that the depression is here and I'm going to make space for it. Um, and I actually wanted to offer a poem uh, at some point during our talk that kind of talks a little bit about this or, or addresses or alludes to it. Um, so you might have heard this or listeners might have heard this poem before. It's called The Guest House by Rumi. Love that. <laughs> this being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. They may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. So, yeah, I think that kind of gets at what we were talking about before, Uh Um, really making space for those emotions, whatever they are, right? Mm -hmm. Mindfulness allows us to sit with the good, the bad, the neutral, Yeah, and what you said about detaching really resonates with me. So 
um, like I am here and anxiety is here, but mm. I am not my anxiety. Like anxiety is a part of what I'm experiencing and kind of noticing that constant part of us that's always present um, and not letting that be consumed by, you know, whatever strong feelings are present as well. Yeah. Yep. Right on. Exactly. And and that made me think of um, with uh, depression as well. Oftentimes when we feel depressed, we are rehashing the past. And that's mm. one of the habits of the mind, either rehashing the past or rehearsing for the future. Um, mm-hmm. And when we get caught in rehashing the past, um, it brings up feelings of sadness, um, loss of interest. We might start feeling depressed and mindfulness allows us to recognize that and then bring our awareness um, back to the moment. And, and with kindness and compassion, like the goal is not to uh, never get lost in thought. Like that's impossible. Or, or the mind, they say, uh, a lot of mindfulness teachers say the mind creates thoughts just like our mouths create saliva, <laughs> just like our heart beats, right? It's mm-hmm. our minds produce thoughts. Um, we're not trying to stop the thoughts. We're just trying to recognize when we're lost in them and then bring our awareness back to the present moment. Yeah, that's the practice. I've also heard it said um, what we're trying to do is increase the space between the thoughts, mm-hmm. which is often helpful for me when my mind is racing. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and again, doing that with kindness and compassion, right? I mean, it's normal for our, us to sometimes have racing thoughts. And I don't know if this happens for you, but sometimes going to bed for folks can be a time where the mind races. Yeah, um, absolutely. No distractions. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And just being kind with ourselves and just noticing like that's the moment of mindfulness. Like the moment you realize, Oh, my mind is racing or I'm having Mm -hmm. a lot of thoughts. That's mindfulness. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So can you tell us a little bit about how you found meditation? So I, I learned a little bit in my early teens and I would say my regular formal and informal practice probably started in my early 20s. Um, same with mindful movement through, through yoga um, around my early 20s. Um, I've really tried to lean into my informal practice of, of meditation and, or of mindfulness, I should say. Uh, so I've really tried to incorporate mindfulness in whenever I eat or when I'm walking or when I exercise and mm-hmm. I am not successful most of the time, but I've tried to bring that awareness from time to time. Um, and it could be just something as simple as, you know, putting away my phone and really engaging with what I'm eating and uh, trying not to multitask. Um, mm-hmm. But my, yeah, my formal practice has been kind of on and off to be honest. Uh, it's, it's been a lot more consistent um, in the past few years, um, but there have been periods of time where I just did an informal practice. And um, maybe I shouldn't say just, I, I did an informal practice. That's what I was able to do. Or I mm-hmm. was focusing more on yoga. Um, and I, I do 
mostly uh, lean into guided meditations. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some times where I will just sit um, and practice on my own without audio, but I do enjoy guided meditations a lot. And we all differ with that too. Mm-hmm. Where do you find your guided meditations? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm laughing a little bit now because Felix and I have very different perspectives. He loves, like he loves headspace. Like he just swears by headspace. He's <laughs> sold and he is unwilling to waver versus me. I, I actually will find it, find guided meditations anywhere. Um, YouTube. So today I used YouTube. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes I use Insight Timer. I've used Calm. I've used Headspace. Um, I've recorded my own voice and listened to my own voice. Um, yeah. So I, I'm not very particular about that. And actually, mm-hmm. I like listening to voices that may not feel good for my ears because I think that also deepens my practice. So what do you mean by that? Yeah. So sometimes I'll listen to a voice and, you know, it, it maybe it doesn't feel as soothing, um, mm-hmm. maybe not as pleasant. Um, and I probably won't listen to it again, but I'll just continue. I'll still practice. Like you'll challenge yourself to finish. Yes. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Um, but that's just my own thing. <laughs> like I get that mm-hmm. some folks want to just find one avenue and stick to that. And I think for folks starting their practice, that is something I encourage is, you know, find what works and stick with that and then explore once you have your practice really established. Yeah. I mean, one of the really encouraging things about what you said is that there are so many resources out there. And, you know, a lot of what you shared, those are free, like YouTube and Insight Timer are free. Right. So uh, I think that's just encouraging. I started with Insight Timer and then um, actually through the podcast found out about Liberate, which is another Mm -hmm. meditation app that's for people of color and all of the meditations are led by people of color as well. Mm. I kind of um, bounce between the two as far as guided meditations go. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And even recording your own voice, mm-hmm. um, you know, you can easily Google a mindfulness script, you can write one yourself. And then if you have access to something you could use to record your voice, so whether it's a phone or some other device, and then listening back, that could be another avenue to consider. And I, I would say maybe when you're a little bit more um, seasoned or a little bit more advanced in your practice that, and especially if you want to facilitate, I think that can be nice too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like that idea of recording your own voice, especially because I think there's power in actually speaking the words yourself. Mm -hmm. And then of course, you know, listening as well. So things that came up as I was preparing for our conversation today is I was thinking about how the meditation practice is similar to starting a new habit or restarting a new habit, you know, depending on how the practice changes for you over time. So I'm curious if you could share with us a little bit about the psychology behind starting or restarting a new habit. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's a really, that's a really great question. Um, so to me, starting and restarting, like the science behind it's really the same. Um, and I mean, the biggest thing that folks will talk about uh, is the consistency um, and not only consistency in doing it regularly, but also um, uh, with the time of day um, and the location as well. Hmm. So we talk a lot about having a space for your practice, um, whether that's a nook in a room or whether that's a park or your car, like wherever it may be, um, like having that be uh, your place to practice. And part of that is that it serves as a behavioral cue. Um, It reminds you of your practice. So for example, if you have a meditation cushion or a certain pillow or chair that you practice in regularly, seeing it can just remind you of your practice. Mm -hmm. Um, So that can be really helpful with starting your practice and also starting it back up is ha- especially when uh, you're starting it, I would say is having that uh, external cue that can remind you and also pairing it with a pre-existing behavior. Mm-hmm. And that can also serve as a cue. So what I mean by that is pairing your practice with um uh, your morning ritual, pairing that practice with your nighttime ritual. Uh, for me, it's with coffee. So after having my coffee, that's, you know, once like the juices get flowing, it's, it's a prime time for me to, to practice. And that's my uh, pairing is I have my coffee and then I will do my meditation practice. Um, some folks do it before they even get ready for the day or come downstairs or wherever they go for their, um, uh, to, you know, get their day started. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it's really what works for you. It is about workability, but really pairing it with something that you're already doing can be really powerful. Um, and the same goes with restarting a practice. The only thing I'd say that with restarting a practice that to be really uh, aware of is making sure that there's no judgment right? Same with Mm. in your mindfulness um, exercise, your mindfulness meditation, just like a thought may pop up and just like you may get lost on that thought, you will bring your awareness back um, with kindness and compassion. And you can do the same when you restart your practice, right? Not getting lost in judgment, having a non-judgmental stance um, with restarting. Because I know I'll be really hard on myself if I stop my formal practice. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think that's really key because that will get in the way of getting it back up. I mean, the same goes with exercise or any other habit we're trying to build. If we're going to be so hard on ourselves, we may never build that practice back up again. Um, yeah. I hope that got at your question. Yeah, it definitely did. And so what you're saying is we can't shame ourselves into consistency. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I, I keep saying kindness and compassion because that's something I've really been um, just anchoring myself in recently. Um, and not only as just how I want to show up in the world, but also um, as part, like an integral part of mindfulness. I mean, that's central to mindfulness. Um, 
and it's so hard. It's so hard, especially mm-hmm. that self-compassion piece is really hard. And it's a, it's a muscle to build just like mindfulness. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of great resources out there. Um, Dr. Kristen Neff is the pioneer. Um, she has a wonderful website that has awesome resources for self-compassion, including self-compassion exercises, um, some audio links as well. Um, and just strongly encourage folks who are interested in strengthening that muscle um, to, to check that out. Uh, but I do want to take a moment to kind of talk about what mindfulness isn't, because uh, mm-hmm. uh, I think that's important, you know, for folks. Uh, and it's something I like to address often, too. Uh, so mindfulness isn't about relaxation. And I think that's the mm-hmm. one that can be really confusing for folks. Um, mindfulness is it's not about doing something. It's, it's a way of being, and you might feel relaxed or you might not. Um, and I'm sure you've had experiences and your listeners have had experiences where they practice and they did not feel relaxed afterward. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's okay. The goal is not to feel relaxed. Um, it's also not about stopping thoughts. You know, like we said earlier, our minds will always produce thoughts. We don't want to stop thoughts. We're just becoming aware of the thoughts and redirecting our attention to the anchor might be the breath or something else. Um, And it's not always about breath either, right? So that's, again, just one anchor, but that might not be the focus of um, many mindfulness exercises. Um, And you don't have to be sitting down Um, That's Mm -hmm. another big one. So mindfulness can be practiced in four ways. So you can be seated or you can be lying down or standing or walking. So there's usually four postures or uh, ways to practice mindfulness. Um, And I think we oftentimes get this image of what a mindful person looks like and and Mm -hmm. what they're doing. And and we just want to kind of, uh, you know, just... Uh, break apart that that idea because it's it doesn't always look pretty and we're not always sitting upright in that position and we're not always you know a white woman you know looking relaxed in yoga <laughs> well, I'm never I'm never yeah. that so. <laughs> like it's you know I'm not wearing lululemon when I'm practicing yeah. mindfulness like you know it's uh it, it's become glamorized it really has Absolutely. I think just demystifying and, and, um, and also talking about how mindfulness shows up for folks in, um, in their upbringing, in their culture. And it's, it's, it's not only an Eastern philosophy, we can see it embedded. Um, I mean, anywhere, uh, Felix mm-hmm. and I were just talking about this earlier. It may not be the same type of meditation, but uh, we can find pieces of it uh, across the world. Can you talk a little bit more about the other anchors that folks can use? Because you said it's not always about the breath, which made me think of um, meditating while pregnant or ill. Mm. (laughs) Because at least in my experience, that's the time when it can be difficult to, you know, access that deep breathing or mindful breathing. So what other anchors can people use? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So like points of contact, noticing uh, 
the way our bodies feel where we're, whether we're sitting down or lying down or, or walking. Um, so with like mindful walking, your awareness is being drawn to the movement um, of your legs and your feet, right? Just bringing your awareness there. And, and I realize that's not accessible for everybody, but for folks who are able to do that, uh, that's one anchor. Um, also sound, sound mm-hmm. is a really powerful anchor for mindfulness. I, I just did a mindfulness of um, listening or a mindfulness of sound exercise on my porch the other day and just basically noticed the sounds that I might otherwise not notice. So the Mm -hmm. humming of the AC, the birds, something, you know, in uh, a few houses away or just noticing sounds uh, around me. Uh, So that sound is a really great anchor as well. And oftentimes uh, can be one of those things that we would never notice if until someone encouraged us to notice it, if that makes sense. Like, I'm not going to notice my AC unless it's really bothering me. So just noticing the things in the background, I just find that really powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the body scan, of course, you know, we might focus a little on the breath, but generally with the body scan, we're bringing our awareness into different parts of our body. So that's our anchor is noticing our feet, our calves, et cetera. Um, yeah. So there, there's a lot. I mean, you know, even – taste with mindful eating that could be an anchor as well um the mindful eating of a raisin exercise is a really common one for folks who want to practice mindful eating um it what it's is silly. that <laughs> oh my gosh Anikia, we'll have to do this together one time it's um <laughs> if you observe people doing it it looks so silly because you literally hold a raisin you notice that, if, you know, if you're able to eat a raisin, you know, you can grab something else if you can't eat a raisin. It can be whatever, but raisin is a popular one. I don't know why. <laughs> um, but you you look at it, you inspect it, you notice. I'm like acting as if I'm doing it now, but I don't have a raisin. But you observe it. Um, look at the color. You look at the wrinkles. You feel it in your hand. You notice um, if it feels sticky, you just just notice anything that comes up when you're touching it. Um, and you bring it to your ear and you move it around and see if you can hear anything and, and mm-hmm. just really bringing your awareness to the raisin. And then the last thing you do is you, well, well, you'll bring it to your nose, you'll smell it. But then the last thing is you'll bring it close to your mouth and you'll take this very tiny bite <laughs> and then notice the, the taste of it. Um, and I mean, that was a simplified description of it. There's a lot of scripts online that you can find. And um, that, again, that's a practice of mindfulness. And the anchor is the raisin, is noticing mm-hmm. the raisin. Um, you could do it with tea. You could do it with a lot of things. Um, there's also mindfulness of observing a, a candle, a, a flame, which can be really like um, – get you into like this state that's like very relaxing, but just turning on a candle and looking at the flame. I feel like I have done that. So I grew up in Jamaica and we had power cuts a lot, like Mm. probably at least once a week. So we would have the house lit with candles 
And as soon as he said that, I felt like I was transported back to my childhood. Oh. <laughs> because I think I spent a lot of time getting caught up in looking at flames. So. Yeah. But I just want to say, I hope everyone hit pause and went and grabbed a raisin. Because <laughs> that, that sounded really cool. Yes, yes. It's it's. It's interesting, um, but I do encourage mindful eating exercises. It can be fun. And, and even appreciating, like, where did this come from? And having gratitude mm-hmm. for the person that you don't know, but the person who brought this into existence, right? And, and um, it can be a really beautiful practice. Yeah, absolutely. So kind of just to recap those anchors for everybody, in addition to the breath, There are points of contact, sounds, um, a body scan, which I love doing body scans, and then um, a raisin or (laughs) any other, um, I guess, the object that you're focusing on in your practice, the food or whatever else it is. Right. I think that's really helpful. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that surprised me about therapy is how much effort it takes to find a therapist that you really click with. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how folks can go about finding a provider, especially now where I think it's really hard to get into, you know, someone's schedule and all of that. Where, where do people start? What should they look for and kind of, a level set with what the process could look like for people? Oh, that's such a great question. And there's so much to be said about this. There's a, it's a, it's a problem. I mean, it really is. And there's a lot of systemic uh, factors that contribute to this problem, but I'll save that for another time and I'll focus on, you know, really answering your question. So, I mean, there's a few options. Um, a few things to consider. Uh, so one, thinking about, do you want to use your insurance? Um, there are folks who do not take insurance, and that seemingly has become more common for some of those systemic reasons I alluded to earlier. Um, but look, you know, looking at whether or not you're going to use your insurance. Um, and if that's the case, and you want to um, look for providers who accept accept your insurance, right? Um, And one way to do that, um, you know, in, I think in the U.S., I don't know um, if Psychology Today operates outside of the U.S. I don't think it does. But Psychology Today is a great resource where providers will um, put up their information and you can look for folks based on a variety of factors, including your zip code, including your insurance, including what you're looking for in particular. Um, Now, there's tons of mental health providers out there. So there's PhDs. Um, so uh, that uh, would include somebody who went to undergrad, might have gotten a master's, but then pursued a doctoral degree um, in clinical or counseling psychology. That also includes a um, one-year uh, internship that's required uh, to graduate. Um, and there's also PsyDs. Um, I know folks get a little bit confused, but PsyDs are also um, doctoral degrees. I mean, they have doctorates, um, but their training is more focused on 
the clinical practice, not as much on uh, research and the clinical practice. Um, that tends to be the way folks differentiate the two. That's not the most sophisticated response, but that just to give you a quick understanding. So PsyDs are also called doctor um, and they're, um, yeah, so you might see a PsyD on there. And then there's obviously social workers, clinical social workers, licensed mental health counselors and licensed professional counselors. So there's a lot of folks out there and um, folks with uh, master's degrees. Uh, so they have a different training um, uh requirements and different programming than folks with PhDs or PsyDs. Um, and it really depends on what you're looking for. So if you need to get an assessment for, you know, if you need to know whether or not you might have ADHD or something like that, you would want to go to a neuropsychologist. Um, hmm. But just want to name that there's a lot of people out there who offer therapy. Um, so picking, you know, picking between those, it, it may not be that easy because you may not have, or it, it actually may be difficult because you may have um, just a limited option based on your insurance. But just to know mm -hmm. that there's a lot of therapy providers out there. Um, and for me, it's like, I look for keywords. Like, does this person reference social justice? Is this, per is this person um, a provider who affirms all gender identities? You know, like I, that, I just look for things like that because that can, um, at least suggest to me that it may be a safe place, right? Um, mm -hmm. So finding things that are important to you um, and, and looking for that in bios and websites, et cetera. Um, and, you know, being uh, also being aware of, you know, if you prefer to work with a person who has more experience in anxiety or depression, like those are things you might want to look for as well. Um yeah. And honestly, Anikia, it's tough. I mean, there's other websites, there's other resource lists out there. Um, I know on, on Twitter, I've seen, I think there's a document or there's something out there called therapy for black girls. I haven't looked into it, but I know that exists. Um, yeah, that's how I found all my therapists actually. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there's, there are things like that circulating um, on the internet. So, you know, looking at resources like um, either through social media or through Google searches, and there's just not a clean, easy way to do it. And you might mm -hmm. find the perfect person on paper and then you do your first session and the vibe is not great. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. and, and that vibe matters, like how you feel with that person matters. Um, you don't have to continue with them if you don't want to, right. You don't have to go back. Um, so I want to pause there because I've often wondered if some of the discomfort that comes up for folks in therapy is because they actually need to fit with it you know what I mean like the work mm. is coming up versus the vibe not being right Woo! can we talk about that <laughs> yes that's such a good question I mean that's such a good question so when I say the vibe not being right I, I'm thinking more of like the person didn't, I didn't perceive them as kind or mm -hmm. they didn't make eye contact the way that I thought they would, or they didn't try to pronounce my name correctly, or mm -hmm. they, I mean, they, they were microaggressive, like things like that, where it's like, okay, like these are, you know, like, whoa, <laughs> like, no, this is not going to work. But then there's, yes, the discomfort of 
someone's noticing something about me and naming that and that makes me uncomfortable like yes Mm -hmm. it um and sometimes we might sometimes we may not have the self-awareness to know which one is happening right right may just say it felt weird but it was really because they saw us and they named something and we didn't like it yeah so would you say is there like a minimum number of sessions that folks should commit to before they make a decision? On the yeah. I mean, I think it depends on what, like what's happened. I mean, if I, if someone mm-hmm. says something offensive, um, you know, and it depends on what it is. Right. So for me, oftentimes my name gets mispronounced um, or I don't know. I mean, gosh, there's been actually a lot of things that have happened and I've been <laughs> like, okay, like I'm, like, okay, I can give them grace. Like, I'm okay, like, coming back. And there's other times where it's like, oh, yeah, no. Like, this is just, mm-hmm. like, it's not going to work after that first visit. It's, like, not even worth pursuing it. I think it's, like, a personal, like, intuition. I'm big into intuition, like, really listening to your gut. If that feels like something you're comfortable doing, not everyone does, um, I mean, if, it, if you're paying out of pocket and you just don't have a good vibe, I mean, hey, like that's, that's your money, right? Like if you want to, yeah. and we encourage folks to, to look for folks until they find a good fit. The issue these days is there's so many wait lists, their demand is high and it's harder to yeah. shop around. Yeah, Absolutely. And I just wanted to circle back to one thing you mentioned about the different degrees that are out there. Yeah. Does it actually matter? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's such a good, good question. Um, so I, my short answer is no, <laughs> like it doesn't. Um, really what matters is the fit, um, how you feel with the person. Um, now, Sometimes it does matter for folks and there's a lot to unpack there, right? You know, whether it's elitism or, or something else. Um, mm-hmm. Now, if you're looking for something in particular, it might matter. Um, so like the assessment that I mentioned earlier. So not everybody can do a psychodiagnostic assessment to diagnose something like ADHD or to make uh, accommodations for testing. So let's say somebody has a hard time focusing and they need extra time on tests and they need to have an evaluation done. Not any mental health provider can do that, right? Um, So there are moments where, yes, it does make a difference. Um, And those moments are usually quite clear. But for folks who are wanting to do what's the most common, which is to go to therapy for personal growth or to go to therapy to reduce anxiety, to reduce depression. Um, yeah. I mean, in general that you can really go to, to anybody. Um, yeah. Any licensed professional. Yeah. Oh, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) You could go to your neighbor down the road. Um, or up the street, or your mom, or no, no, no. Oh, she would love that. (laughs) But that's one of the things that tripped me up when I was looking for a therapist. Um, I just had no experience, really, with all the different degrees and certifications out there. Um, So just wanted to put that out. Looking at uh, licensing boards, so for example, for psychology, we have the American Psychological Association, and, you know, each... um, 
each uh, profession has their own. So like looking at that and like reading more on uh, the different fields and seeing what connects with you the most. I mean, uh, this exists in medicine as well with the MDs and DOs. And, you know, we see this come up and just understanding it a little, if that's something you're interested in. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. And bios should also tell you that like websites should tell you that. and, And you can always ask the person too, like, I love to hear about your training. What did you focus on? Which populations did you work with? Um, those are questions I like to look at as well. Mm-hmm. And you would do that before scheduling the first session? Yeah. So many people offer like a, a you know 10 to 15 minute consultation call where you can decide where you think it's even worth scheduling that initial visit. Um, and that would be the time to ask that. Um, so mm-hmm. I'm looking to focus on this. Have you ever worked with this? What's your experience with this? What, where have you, where did you train? Anything that you value, right? Like there's no right or wrong. Um, but just making sure that you feel it's like informed consent, feeling like you're, uh, comfortable moving forward with that next step. And of course you'll do more of that in the first session, um, as well. Um, so one question for you is, what would you say to someone who, let's say they're on their third therapist and they really just haven't been able to find a good fit? And, you know, I think those thoughts come up of, well, maybe therapy is not for me or, you know, will I ever find someone? Mm, yeah. So I would want to be curious about what's been going on and what has it been about those relationships with those people? Like what, what, what happened? Right. Um, and when did that person decide to leave? Right. Um, cause it might tap into what you mentioned earlier of they started to feel discomfort because someone saw them and named something that felt uncomfortable. Like it's like someone held that mirror up to you and you saw something you didn't want to see. So you go to the next person hoping they won't do that, but then they do, right? So it can, it really, to me, varies. Um, you know, I want to, like, honor that therapy may not be for everybody, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it, 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 Which it's... Which was, was my next question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, as a, as a psychologist, like, I, I get that. I get that. And I, it's, it can feel very uncomfortable. I tell people this all the time. Like, like I thank people for being vulnerable with me because I'm a stranger to them. Like after that first session, it's like, who am I? Right. Like I'm this person you've never met and you're like opening up like that's wow. Like what an honor and privilege for me to, to hear that. Um, and I recognize like, that's not what a lot of folks want to do. And there's like so many reasons for that. Right. Um, again, another conversation, but like there's folks who may not want to open up. People may not feel comfortable. They may not feel like it's safe to do that. Like how could this be used against me? Um, people, Mm -hmm. I hear this a lot. People are going to think I'm crazy. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. gender comes up a lot. Like, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. Like, you know, I'm a man, like I don't need to come in. It's, it it looks like I'm weak. I'm being vulnerable. That doesn't feel good. Um, so there's a lot there, um, in terms of like contextual reasons that, that come up. But I, 
I would say that I, yeah, it's not forever, but for everyone for sure. And there's Mm -hmm. other approaches, right? So obviously we have the field of psychiatry, we have med management, if that's, you know, something someone's interested in and there's alternative approaches to healing, like a hundred percent. I mean, yoga, right. There's, uh, acupuncture, there's aromatherapy, you know, there's a lot of like complementary um, and alternative forms of medicine that can promote healing as well. Um, so really listening to yourself and what you want. I mean, I, even though I'm a psychologist, like that's not like therapy is not always my method of healing. In fact, it's, it's not often my method of healing. It, it Me is personally. Yeah. Personally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sorry. <laughs> yes. Yes. Personally, it's not always my, my method of healing. It's, I, I lean into other, um, forms of healing as well. And, and I encourage folks to, to explore that too, if they feel like therapy is not for them, but to also be critical about why therapy is not for you too. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think they go together. And I appreciate you sharing all of the resources for people who do decide that they want to give it a try. Um, I personally have decided that therapy, as long as I have access to it, I'm going to be in therapy consistently because it has been just so helpful. Yeah. Even when things aren't, you know, crazy in my life. (laughs) Just to have that consistent space for self-care. Totally. Well, thank you so much, Raha. This was a, such a good conversation and I could keep talking for a while. Um, but I appreciate you sharing with us your personal practice. And then, of course, kind of diving deep into therapy and the different areas that we talked about. So thank you so much for sharing this with everyone. Mm, no, thank you so much for the invitation. I love this conversation and um, had a lot of fun. So, yeah, thanks for having me.